This afternoon, we'll be reading from Scripture from the book, The Acts of the Apostles. And we'll be reading Acts chapter 6, the verses 11 to 15. Acts 16, pardon me. Acts 16, the verses 11 to 15. And you'll be able to find that on page 1275 of your book of praise. In this passage, Paul has been traveling from place to place preaching the gospel. They have just gone through Phrygia, region of Galatia. They're forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. They tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them. And a vision came to him of a man from Macedonia saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And so they have decided to follow the guiding of the Lord. And brings us to verse 11. Therefore, sailing from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace. And the next day came to Neapolis. And from there to Philippi, which is the foremost colony of that part of Macedonia. A colony. The foremost city of that part of Macedonia. A colony. And we were staying in that city for some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went out of the city to the riverside where prayer was customarily made. And we sat down and spoke to the women who met there. Now a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshipped God. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household were baptized, she begged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And so she persuaded us. So far the word of God. This afternoon we'll also be reading from the canons of Dort. A summary of scripture regarding total depravity, the teachings of the Bible on total depravity and irresistible grace. We'll be reading Canons of Dort, chapter 3, 4, article 12. And you'll be able to find that on page uh, 578 of your book of praise. The heading there is regeneration, which is the renewing of man. Regeneration is the work of God alone. This conversion is the regeneration, the new creation, the raising from the dead, the making alive so highly spoken of in the scriptures, which God works in us, without us. But this regeneration is by no means brought about only by outward teaching, by moral persuasion, or by such a mode of operation that after God has done his part, it remains in the power of man to be regenerated or not regenerated, converted or not converted. It is, however, clearly a supernatural most powerful and at the same time most delightful, marvelous, mysterious, and inexpressible work. According to Scripture, inspired by the author of this work, regeneration is not inferior to the power of creation or the raising of the dead. Hence, all those in whose hearts God works in this amazing way are 
certainly, unfailingly, and effectually regenerated and do actually believe. And then the will so renewed is not only acted upon and moved by God, but acted upon by God, the will itself also acts. Therefore, man himself is rightly said to believe and repent through the grace he has received. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the picture that we find today in our Bible reading, in the passage that we read from Acts, is a picture of a man who is hard at work, traveling from place to place and bringing the gospel. The Apostle Paul, as you may know, was a man who was initially one of the greatest enemies of the Church of Christ. He belonged to a prominent family in the tribe of Benjamin. Concerning the law, he was a Pharisee. He had devoted his life to it. He was zealous in his belief, persecuting the church. And he stood by, guarding the coats of the murderers and approving the death of the first martyr of the Christian church, Stephen, a man executed by stoning. But the Lord had plans for him and his zeal. He confronted him on the road to Damascus where he was traveling with intent to arrest and murder as many in the Christian community as he could in the name of defending the faith. Why are you persecuting me? Christ asked him in a voice from heaven out of blinding light. And in that instant and in the days which followed, Christ took hold of him, shaping him and transforming his heart. Everything that he held dear before, he now considered rubbish in comparison with the greatness of knowing Christ. Abandoning his position of prestige, he joined the people he was persecuting. No one in his day and age understood the power of Christ's transforming grace in the heart of man more vividly than the Apostle Paul. This is what caused him to write to one of his students, Timothy, in 1 Timothy 1, verse 13 and following, I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. However, for this reason I obtain mercy, that in me first, Jesus Christ might show all long-suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe in him for everlasting life. Christ took hold of this man who was dead in sin. This man who was the worst of the worst. And he transformed him. Because of Christ, the zeal that had driven him from city to city, bringing persecution and death, now carried him from city to city, bringing the gospel and life. In our passage today, God granted this man, Paul, the wonderful gift of being able to see that exact same pattern of God's mercy taking hold of another person's life. Over his travels along the way, he had been forbidden from entering Asia, forbidden from entering Bithynia, because God had intended on directing him to Philippi, to a soul that he himself had chosen. 
Here we're introduced to Lydia, a seller of purple cloth from the city of Thyatira. She heard the gospel message. She had her heart opened by her Savior and was transformed. In light of that, we'll take some time to, today to see how this story of Lydia is a beautiful reflection of God's mercy to us in two very interdependent doctrines, the doctrine of total depravity and God's invincible grace. So we see in Lydia, we see the invincible grace of God in the face of our desperate need. And we'll first see a hardened heart, and secondly, the Lord's opening. The narrative that we find here today finds the main person, Lydia, in Philippi. This is the foremost city in that part of Macedonia. It's a colony of Rome where the veterans of the Roman Empire, veteran Roman soldiers, had been settled. And because of this, the city enjoyed a special status in the Roman Empire. People who live there haven't made. For those who are interested in that kind of thing, it was like living in Toronto, New York, or L.A. It was living in a wealthy, prominent, populated city. Now, there was no particular reason for Paul to be in this part of the empire. He had planned on heading elsewhere. But God sent him a vision of a Macedonian man pleading, come over to Macedonia to help us. Recognizing that this was from God, that God had a plan for Macedonia and that he needed to submit to that plan, immediately Paul and his companions sought to go there. The Lord had opened a way and Paul was going to take advantage to that, of that to serve in the kingdom. And it's during this missionary trip to Macedonia that we are introduced to this wealthy seller of purple cloth from the city of Thyatira. She's a woman who worshipped God, meaning that she was a convert to Judaism, but had not yet heard the gospel. And it's at this point that the Holy Spirit introduces us to the power of God. We're not given much information about what kind of person Lydia is, but we know enough about her to make this statement. She was a human being. And as with all human beings, as with Lydia, as with you, as with me, as with Everett here today, we are all born into this world in a fallen state. She was conceived and born in sin. We can read about that in Psalm 51, and we sang about that today too, didn't we? We sang, God, you have I offended, you alone. In mercy, hear my sorrowful confession. How evil in your sight is my transgression. It goes on, it says, I have from birth been guilty, ever sinning, for in iniquity I was conceived, tainted with sin right from my life's beginning. That's a quote from Psalm 51, verse 5, those last few lines in particular. And it teaches us the human condition, the state in which we come into the world. Now, as a proselyte, a foreigner who had come to know of God and worship Him according to the Jewish ways, she would have had the law. She would have had come to know and observe the Ten Commandments. But was that enough? 
We learn from God's word that mere obedience, mere outward obedience is not enough. And that was the message that God was bringing to her through the Apostle Paul. Because we all suffer from this condition called total depravity. It's something that we are steeped in from birth. And we'll get to exactly what that is in a moment. But because of this, we cannot obey God in the way that He requires, nor can we turn to Him when the gospel message calls to us. At least, we cannot do it without the radical work of God in our lives. But before I get into explanation of that in detail, let me first explain what total depravity is not. There's a common misconception out there that the doctrine of total depravity means that sin so steeps us that everyone is as bad as they could be. But that's not the case. And we can see proof of that in the world around us. Your friend down the street may not believe in God, but she can sure bake some good cookies for you when Christmas rolls around. Your neighbor may not believe, but he's sure kind when he snow blows your driveway. Mankind is not as bad as they could be in every area of life. And that's all due to the grace of God. When mankind fell into sin, God did not leave them completely in the darkness into which they plunged themselves. He had created man in his image. He had adorned him with true and wholesome knowledge of his creator and of all spiritual things. His will and his heart were upright. All his affections were pure. And therefore man was completely holy. When man fell, he certainly, as Article 1 of this chapter puts it, through his own free will deprived himself of these excellent gifts. And instead he brought upon himself blindness, horrible darkness, futility and perverseness of judgment in his mind, wickedness, rebelliousness and stubbornness in his will and heart, impurity in all his affections. It's total in that it affects every aspect of our being. Our judgment, our will, our affections, every single part of us. It's like a cancer that's metastasized and has affected a terminal patient's entire body. No part of our life is spared. But it doesn't mean that it's as bad as it could be. Not everyone is a serial killer, adulterer, thief, liar, slanderer, and absolutely selfish, all rolled into one. Not everyone is just looking out for themselves. We can see in Romans 1 that God has left imprinted some knowledge of himself in their lives, even though he rightfully could have taken it away. You know, when man fell into sin, God didn't have to leave them with any remnant of that. He rightfully could have taken it away. But God left imprinted on them some knowledge of himself in their lives. As we read in article 4 of today's chapter, there is left in man after the fall some light of nature, whereby he retains some notions about God, about natural things, and about the difference between what is honorable and shameful, and shows some regard for virtue and outward order. That is God's mercy. He didn't leave us completely stripped of his image, but he let some light remain in us, 
in order that the human race might survive, might continue to exist instead of tear itself apart, and that his people might one day be redeemed in the person and work of Christ. But does this light of nature mean that man can find God of his own accord? Is it enough for that? Or at least, can it mean that man is able to, on knowing what God wants of us through his law, obey God fully of himself? Man, having done his best to overthrow God in his life, has through his own fault damaged the image of God that remains in his life to such an extent that he's not able to arrive at the saving knowledge of God and true conversion through this light of nature that remains in his own heart that remains in all of creation. Let's look back to Lydia for a moment. Sure, she was exposed to the law as a Greek who was attending a synagogue, as a proselyte, as a convert. But would this be enough? Not even the knowledge of the law itself is enough. This would have been one of the first things that Paul would have preached to her and the other women who were there that day. Otherwise, what would he have been doing there, preaching first at the synagogue in the first place, if obedience to the law was enough? You cannot preach Christ without preaching the failure of mankind. Otherwise, what need would there have been for a Christ? As Paul writes in Romans 3, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and that all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by deeds of the law, no flesh shall be justified in his sight. For by the law is knowledge of sin. And later he says, for there is no difference. For all have sinned. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The law brings us to know our sin. To reveal to us where in our lives we are in rebellion to God. We're already in rebellion, but the law brings it to light. It's like a spotlight. It's like a mirror that allows the person to see a true image of themselves as they are and not as they think they are. And that would have been a shock to all of the Jews who were listening to Paul that day. What hope was there for them then? But Paul goes on, and this is where the good news of the gospel comes for Jews who were so long under the law. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. That is, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. And this passage shows us two things. First, Total depravity is a real thing. Sin has so totally soaked through our lives that even the law can't save us, but can only show us our sin and therefore more thoroughly condemn us. Second, that in response to our sin, which so incapacitated us, made us so unable, God did what man could not and gave man a righteousness that is apart from the law. A righteousness that was already foreshadowed by the sacrifices and ceremonies of the law. And in that way, the law bore witness to it. A righteousness found in Jesus Christ. 
Sin is all man. Sin is all man. Salvation is all the mercy of God. And that mercy finds its pinnacle in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That is the gospel which Paul preached to everyone who would listen. But our passage not only shows the depths of God's mercy to that extent, but it shows it to an even greater extent. He showed the lengths that he would go to to bring salvation to people. Consider for a moment the fact that Lydia would not even have had a chance to hear the gospel and believe if God had not sent Paul that vision to go to Macedonia. God had reached out from eternity and said to her, you are mine. And having done that, he proceeded to let events fall into place so that that could come to pass. But it was more than that yet. Brothers and sisters, God's love goes so much deeper than that. Because in our fallen condition, even just hearing the gospel news isn't enough. We need the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Because of that, the story of Lydia shows us that the Father not only takes care that the gospel is preached to his people, but he powerfully enlightens their minds by the Holy Spirit the third person of the Trinity. He makes them understand and know the things of the Spirit. If it was not for the work of God, Lydia would not have come to know the gospel, much less to believe it. But because God had chosen to direct history, Paul did come. She did hear the message. And as we read in verse 14 of our passage, the Lord opened her heart to heed the things that were spoken of by Paul. We find this concept that we see with the Lord opening our heart more vividly put in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 11 to 12. No one knows the things of God except the spirits of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, not this spirit of intellectualism, this spirit which can deduce things, but we have received the spirit who is from God that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. How then is total depravity a doctrine of grace? How does it teach us about God's mercy? It's a doctrine of grace because God in His mercy doesn't leave us in that depraved state into which we plunge ourselves. Instead, like with Lydia, he exposes us to the gospel. He works in us. He transforms us, renews us. The teaching of total depravity does not stand alone. Instead, it's partnered with invincible grace, the persistent, unyielding, transformational power of the Holy Spirit, which opens the heart of mankind. So in our passage, you can see the grace of God by bringing Paul to Lydia. You can see it as the Lord renews her mind and transforms her will, but you can most clearly see it as he opens her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. And her transformation is followed by a change in life. She's heard the message of her need. She's repented and believed. And now she begs Paul to be allowed to demonstrate the fruit of what God has worked in her life. 
And this is what we find elsewhere in Scripture as well, this pattern. Ephesians 2, verse 8 to 10. For it is by grace that you have been saved, through faith. And this faith, this not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, created to do good works, like Lydia follows up on, which God has prepared in advance for us to do. You see, God doesn't drag us kicking and screaming into the kingdom of heaven. That's not what's meant by invincible grace. And you can see that with the impact that the gospel message has on Lydia herself. It doesn't use brute force. It has transformational power and leads her to seek and to serve. Having heard the gospel message, there's a genuine change that happens after the Lord opens her heart to heed the message spoken of by Paul. And, as the canons of Dort put it, the heart that's acted upon acts. The heart that is acted upon acts. The canons of Dort describe this change well in article 16 of this chapter. This divine grace of regeneration does not act upon men as if they were blocks and stones and does not take away the will and its properties or violently coerce it, but it makes the will spiritually alive, heals it, corrects it pleasantly and at the same time powerfully bends it. As a result, where formerly the rebellion and resistance of the flesh fully dominated, now a prompt and sincere obedience of the Spirit begins to prevail. It's like the prophet Isaiah says, it's taken out a heart of stone and replaced it with a heart of flesh. A heart that seeks to serve God and follow God. So as you begin to see the fruit of faith in your lives, the obedience and love that follows faith, give thanks to God. Are you growing in love for God and for His Word? Do you seek to serve people in your church family in love? Do you treat your wife better than you did a year ago, five years ago, ten years ago? Do you actively speak to respect your husband more? Do you take free evenings or days to help someone move? Give thanks to God. It's He who turned your heart and who is continuing to turn your heart so that you eagerly seek the better thing. It's God who has transformed the will. And now that your will has been transformed, the heart that is acted upon acts. What mercy and grace God bestows on us. We read in Acts 17 verse 24 to 25, God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. The Lord doesn't need our worship. But in his mercy and for the sake of Christ, he applies our total depravity to Christ and applies Christ's infinitely complete righteousness to us. He transforms us by his spirit and he grants us life. 
Beloved, this ought to be really eye-opening for us today. Why do I say this? Well, the fact that we not only are in a position to be sitting here today, hearing the gospel of grace preached to us, but also that God is working by His Spirit among us to help us understand the depths of His grace towards us. This, too, is a mark of God's infinite mercy towards us. Think about that. For those of you who are born and raised in the church, God chose from before the foundation of the world to have your fathers converted. To have the gospel message passed down to you through the generation. To give you faithful parents. And to have you sitting here listening to the declaration of his love and his faithfulness for you despite the depths of your sin. And despite where you came from. In his love for you, he arranged all of history to bring you here today. For those of you who were not born and raised in the church, God chose from before the foundation of the world to bring you here, to hear the gospel message that you, along with the rest of mankind, are deserving of condemnation. That the mercy of God extends the free gift of grace to you. That if you repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you too will be transformed in His image. You too will be His people. So what does this tell us if we, for example, find ourselves on Parliament Hill in Ottawa, marching to end abortion, and seeing loud and aggressive protesters shouting at us, holding signs or wearing hats or, or full-body costumes which are crass or obscene, shouting things which ought not even to be spoken. It tells us when we look at them that we ought to have compassion on them. It tells us that there is really no dividing line between us. We're no better than them. We are all wretches found in a common condition. The whole group that you find there every year when people march, protesters, counter-protesters, all in one category, all wretches found in a common condition. But the one thing that does set apart, that does set apart these wretches from those wretches is the amazing grace of God. This grace beyond all measure. This grace unending and grace unfailing. This completely undeserved, completely complete grace. Enough to supply everything we need for our salvation and so much more besides. This grace that constantly transforms and renews our hearts day by day. This grace that allows the actions that we do the changes that we see in our lives, the deepening of our faith, be the result of God's acting on us first. The result of God's acting upon our hearts being that we act. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Amen.